1: and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour. On the morning of June 24th, 1947, amateur pilot Kenneth Arnold took off from an airstrip in Idaho in his small Cal Air A2 and headed for an air show in Pendleton, Oregon.
1: With clear skies and almost no wind, Arnold decided to take a slight detour and fly past Mount Rainier in Washington. A Marine Corps C-46 transport plane had crashed in the area recently, and there was a $5,000 reward waiting for whoever could find the wreckage.
0: As Arnold scanned the ground below, something in the distant sky caught his eye. It was a blue-tinged bright flash, like when the sun catches a mirror at just the right angle. Arnold looked around for a nearby aircraft, but only saw a DC-4 passenger plane about 15 miles away. It was too far to be the source of the light Arnold had seen.
1: Suddenly, he saw the light flash again. But this time, there were nine of them. Arnold could scarcely believe his eyes. What he was seeing exceeded any technology humankind had produced to that point. What he was seeing shouldn't be possible what he was seeing was the first officially documented sighting of UFOs. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
0: Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. You
1: can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at Parcast Network, and at ParCast.com.
0: Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening.
1: This week's episode is the first of two parts on UFOs, otherwise known as unidentified flying objects. Today we'll be going into the early history of UFOs and the events that spawned a massive 20-year governmental study into what UFOs could be and whether they represented a threat to American national security.
0: Are these mysterious objects the result of secret military projects, alien spacecraft, overactive imaginations, or are they something else entirely?
1: The term UFO was officially coined in 1953 by the United States Air Force. The term encompasses any airborne object which, by performance, aerodynamic characteristics, or unusual features, does not conform to any presently known aircraft or missile type or which cannot be positively identified as a familiar object such as balloons, astronomical bodies, birds, and so forth.
0: UFOs became ingrained in the public consciousness in the late 1940s and early 1950s. After the use of nuclear weapons during World War II, fear and paranoia over unknown technology was higher than it had ever been. Many people felt there was an explanation for what Kenneth Arnold had seen in 1947. But for others, the fear that the mysterious flying objects were the work of a hostile foreign power or even extraterrestrial aliens was all too real.
1: However, even though the term UFO wasn't coined until a few years after Kenneth Arnold's fateful flight in 1947, there has still been many recorded sightings of strange aerial objects throughout history that people couldn't
0: explain. A pamphlet from Nuremberg, Germany, details the appearance of two vertical cylinders that appeared in the sky on the morning of April 4, 1561. Witnesses reported seeing hundreds of spheres and disks emerge from the cylinders. They clashed with each other for about an hour until they all suddenly fell from the sky and were consumed in fire and smoke before any observers could get a closer look.
1: Local artist Hans Glaser depicted the event in a woodcut print that was published in a broadsheet, or type of newspaper, ten days after the event. The woodcut shows cylindrical objects, multicolored disks and spheres, crosses and cannon-like tubes crowded together in the sky. At the time, the residents of Nuremberg interpreted the event as a warning from God to remain on the path of righteousness. However, recent analysis of the event suggests it could have been some sort of atmospheric phenomenon.
0: UFO skeptic Frank Johnson believes the Nuremberg event was actually something called a parhelion, also known as a sundog. This phenomenon is caused by light refracting through clouds of ice crystal and can look like bright spots to the right or left of the sun. But wouldn't that only account for a few of the hundreds of objects seen in the sky? It's quite possible this account exaggerates what people saw, Other 16th-century broadsheets are known to have exaggerated atmospheric phenomena, like when an aurora was represented as a rain of fire. It could be that Hans Glaser exaggerated the account to make it seem more spectacular. If he believed it was some sort of warning from God, a few bright lights in the sky wouldn't be as imposing as a frightful battle between interstellar objects. And since Glaser's woodcut and description of the event is all we have, it's hard to say exactly what people saw that day.
1: Another possible explanation for what happened in the skies over Nuremberg is that the event was a result of a widespread outbreak of ergotism, which is when fungus growing on grain causes mass hallucinations. Since most of the town probably got their bread from the same baker, it's not hard to figure out why they had possibly hallucinated together.
0: A more clearly documented case of a pre-1947 UFO can be found in an article printed in the Denison Daily News on January 25, 1878. It tells the story of a farmer named John Martin who saw something he couldn't explain while out hunting early one morning north of Dallas, Texas.
1: A strange dark object in the sky caught Martin's attention. It appeared to be about the size of an orange and was quickly moving in his direction and growing larger. By the time it was overhead, he said it had grown to the size of a saucer. This might seem small, but consider how large an airplane appears to be in the sky. It may only look to be a few inches across, but in reality, it's hundreds of feet long.
0: Some UFO enthusiasts claim this is the first instance of a flying saucer, although Martin described the object's shape as balloon-like. But the object was moving much too fast to be a hot air balloon or any man-made aircraft for that matter. The Wright brothers wouldn't take flight in Kitty Hawk for about another 30 years and the object's high speed makes it highly unlikely that it was an atmospheric event like a sundog.
1: The likelihood of Martin's sighting being a hoax is low. He was a respected member of the community and by all accounts, his report was taken seriously. The Denison Daily News article concludes by stating, quote, This strange occurrence, if it was not a balloon, deserves the
0: attention of our scientists, end quote. The lack of plausible explanations, along with Martin's reliable reputation, has led many enthusiasts to label this case as one of the more remarkable pre-1947 UFO sightings, Although the term flying saucer wouldn't be applied to UFOs until after Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting, John Martin's experience in 1878 marks the first time an unidentified flying object was associated with the word saucer.
1: Along with one of the first unexplainable UFO sightings, this time period also showed the potential UFOs had to capture the public imagination. On April 17th, 1897, Around 20 years after John Martin's sighting, Aurora, Texas resident S. E. Hayden reported that a mysterious airship had struck a windmill and exploded.
0: Apparently, the pilot's body, while badly disfigured, was preserved enough to conclude that it was not human, although the article doesn't provide any details on its appearance. The article cites local United States signal service officer T.J. Weems, a self-proclaimed astronomy expert who believed the pilot came from Mars. Again, the article doesn't give any explanation for why he came to this conclusion, but there was precedent for the belief that other planets in the solar system were inhabited.
1: There is mention of life outside of Earth in texts dating all the way back to ancient Greece. Followers of the philosopher Pythagoras claimed the moon had animal and plant life more beautiful than anything found on earth. And Roman philosopher Lucretius wrote in the first century BC that considering the size of the universe, it's likely that other life exists somewhere beyond the stars.
0: Medieval theologians Nicholas of Cusa William Vorolong and Giordano also admitted to the possibility of life on other worlds, although their arguments were more religious in nature than scientific. But the concept of life on other planets was truly popularized by French philosopher Bernard Le Bouvier's 1686 book, Conversation on the Plurality of Worlds.
1: The book was written for the common man, And it introduced the concepts of our modern understanding of the universe and the possibility of life on other worlds it proved to be a huge hit and by 1800 it was available in over 10 languages it could very well be that hayden and weems got their theories from this book
0: unfortunately none of the events described in hayden's article actually happened in a 1979 interview with Time magazine, then 86-year-old Aurora resident Etta Pegas, who had been alive during the supposed airship crash, revealed that it was a hoax. At the time, Aurora's economy was in dire straits as it had been bypassed by a recently built railroad.
1: According to Pegasus, S.E. Hayden was known to be a jokester and wrote the article as a way to generate interest in the town. Although it doesn't seem like Hayden's article did much to boost Aurora's economy, it did illustrate the power of UFOs.
0: We can't help but let our imaginations run wild at the thought of alien visitors. This power would be fully unleashed during a fateful radio broadcast on the night of October 30th, 1938.
1: I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City, the... Bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach.
0: The broadcast was Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, a story about a Martian invasion of Earth, presented as a real-time radio news report. The program was based on the book of the same name written in 1898 by H.G. Wells, no relation to Orson. During the 1800s, Science fiction books had been popularized by authors such as Mary Shelley and Jules Verne. But H.G. Wells was the first notable author to write about space-centric science fiction. In
1: 1937, John W. Campbell founded the Astounding Science Fiction magazine, which many consider to be the beginning of the golden age of science fiction. One year later, Orson Welles would air his now infamous broadcast of The War of the Worlds. Although the start of the program was announced as, quote, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, end quote, most people tuned in a few minutes into the broadcast and missed this message. Lolly Dye was only 16 And she was playing the piano at a church recital when a breathless young man burst into the church and yelled that he had heard on the radio that the Martians had landed.
0: My first thought was, well, if this could be the end of the world, I couldn't be in a better place. I'm in the Lord's house.
1: But after a brief prayer, Di ran to her nearby residence and burst into the house screaming. She remembers startling her mother and later finding out, It was all a hoax. Mike Clufus, Trenton, New Jersey.
0: It's estimated that as many as a million people who listened to the broadcast thought there was an actual invasion underway.
1: I was in the office that night. It was unusual for a Sunday, but we make inspections every now and then. And uh, all of a sudden, the switchboard lighted up real quickly. And for quite a while, we didn't know what was going on. Uh, but uh, the operators, uh, there were only few operators on duty and they couldn't keep up with the situation very well.
0: There were enough people who thought it was real that Wells had to go on air to reassure them that the broadcast was purely fictional. Although stories of the broadcast causing mass hysteria are now thought to be overblown, the incident still serves as an example of people's willingness to believe in alien life. A decade later ufo hysteria gripped the country when kenneth arnold saw those strange objects in the skies over mount rainier according to
1: arnold the nine flashes of light he saw on june 24 1947 came from a group of aircraft flying in what he described as a diagonally stepped down echelon formation in layman's terms it's a formation similar to what you'd see from a flying flock of geese at first
0: That's what Arnold thought he might be seeing, but he quickly realized they were far too large and were stretched out over what he estimated was a distance of five miles. While it can be easy to miscalculate distances in the sky, which has very few reference points, Arnold was an experienced pilot, and his judgment is regarded to be fairly accurate. The objects' side-to-side banking and flipping movements were beyond the capacity of any aircraft at the time, and they were much too large to be birds. The objects were
1: also moving at an incredibly high speed. By measuring the time it took for them to travel the approximately 50 miles between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, Arnold calculated that they were moving close to 1,700 miles per hour, over twice the speed of sound. Without a device to concretely measure how fast they were moving, Arnold's calculation was only guesswork. But one thing was clear. They were moving faster than any object could at the time.
0: 1,700 miles per hour was over three times the speed that any aircraft was capable of flying at the time. The first supersonic flight wouldn't even be conducted until a few months later, in October 1947.
1: About an hour after his strange sighting, Arnold landed at the airfield in Yakima, Washington. As he waited for his plane to be refueled, Arnold told the staff about what he had
0: seen. The story spread like wildfire. By the time Arnold arrived in Pendleton, Oregon, for his air show, his story had already begun to spread, and everyone at the air show was eager to hear Arnold's account firsthand. Journalists
1: quickly learned about Arnold's story and he sat down for an interview with the East Oregonian newspaper on June 25th. He was able to provide clear details without resorting to hyperbole or exaggeration. As a respected businessman and skilled pilot, there was no reason to disbelieve his story, which remained consistent. Soon, other newspapers picked up the story, and Arnold's encounter with what was being called flying discs or saucers spread across the country.
0: However... Arnold had never actually said that the objects he had seen were disc-shaped. In his interviews, Arnold described the object's movements resembling, quote, a saucer if you skip it across the water, end quote. It was from this description that the term flying saucer was born. At some point, Arnold's words were twisted or misinterpreted to insinuate that the objects themselves were shaped like saucers or flying discs, but no matter how hard Arnold tried to correct the record, it was too late. The image of the flying saucer became ingrained in people's minds. On July 4th, only about
1: a week after Arnold's sighting, a United Airlines flight crew claimed they saw nine disc-like aircraft flying over Boise, Idaho. A flood of similar sightings would follow. Over the course of 1947, There were 853 flying disc sightings reported in 140 newspapers across the United States and Canada.
0: Why this sudden influx of sightings? Were people being overly imaginative with natural atmospheric phenomena? Were they finally noticing vessels that had previously escaped their attention? Or was Kenneth Arnold merely the first witness to a new form of incredible technology?
1: There's no definitive answer. But what we do know is that Arnold's sighting occurred at a time when technology was more advanced than ever, and that was a terrifying prospect to many people. The end of World War II in 1945 had seen the cities of Nagasaki and Hiroshima leveled by nuclear bombs. The United States and Russia were at the beginning of the Cold War arms race to develop the deadliest technology possible. People were justifiably scared, It's easy to imagine the paranoia surrounding anything that could be new military technology.
0: When he first saw the objects, Arnold assumed they were some sort of new American military aircraft. But as more and more so-called flying saucers were observed, their odd designs and inhuman technology made people begin to wonder if flying saucers were extraterrestrial in origin. Even Arnold himself began to buy into the idea. In a later interview with Edward R. Murrow, Arnold explained his belief that, quote, if it's not made by our science or our Army Air Forces, I'm inclined to believe that it's of an extraterrestrial origin, end quote.
1: The belief that these mysterious flying disks were alien in origin rose to a fever pitch on July 8, 1947, only two weeks after Kenneth Arnold's famous flight. Roger Ramey, the commanding general of the 8th Air Force, issued a statement that the wreckage of an experimental military weather balloon had been recovered from a ranch in New
0: Mexico. You see, another press release had gone out earlier that morning announcing that the Air Force's 509th Operations Group had recovered an aircraft that had crashed in the area. However, the earlier statement didn't say that it was a weather balloon that was recovered. It was a flying disc, and so began the UFO frenzy that never quite left Roswell. Here's something we can't wait to share with you.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, let's get back to the story. On June 14, 1947, W.W. Brazel and his son Vernon took a drive through the ranch they owned just outside Roswell,
0: New Mexico. As he drove, Brazel spotted something odd scattered across the scrub brush. He described it as, quote, a large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber strips, tinfoil, and rather tough paper and sticks, end quote.
1: Brazel had no idea what to make of this strange debris, so he decided to leave the material where it lay. Ten days later, Kenneth Arnold made his famous sighting that would bring flying saucers into the national consciousness.
0: Brazel caught wind of Arnold's story, and on the 4th of July, he returned to the mysterious materials to collect them and eventually brought the debris to Roswell Sheriff George Wilcox on July 7th. Clearly, something made him decide that what he had seen was out of the ordinary.
1: Sheriff Wilcox agreed, and he contacted Colonel Butch Blanchard, the commander of the Roswell Army's Airfield 509th Composite Group, for help. But Colonel Blanchard was just as mystified. He sent for his superior, General Roger W. Ramey, who commanded the 8th Air Force in Fort Worth, Texas.
0: While he waited for General Ramey to make his way to Roswell, Blanchard dispatched intelligence officer Major Jesse Marcel to investigate the original site more thoroughly. Marcel collected all the remaining wreckage, and on July 8th, he released a public statement that ran in the Roswell Daily Record. The headline read, quote, RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell, end quote. General
1: Ramey quickly intervened. He released his own statement later that day, saying the debris that Brazel had discovered was from a weather balloon. The headline from the July 9th morning edition of the Roswell Dispatch read, quote, Army debunks Roswell Flying Disc as world simmers with excitement, end quote. It seemed as though the matter was put to rest, as interest all around Roswell
0: died down, for a time. But this can of worms wasn't so easily closed. In a matter of only a few weeks, flying saucer fever had spread across the entire globe and showed no signs of slowing down. By late July, there were so many reported sightings that the Air Force began to investigate whether they had any credibility. Lieutenant Colonel
1: George Garrett in the Office of Intelligence was tasked with analyzing the 16 most credible cases of UFO sightings and compiling them into a list of common patterns and physical characteristics of flying disks. He concluded that these sightings were more than figments of people's imaginations. He believed there really were unknown aircraft flying through American skies.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Garrett thought these craft were the result of a highly classified military project. He didn't necessarily believe they were extraterrestrial in origin. Grant sent his report to his superior, General George F. Shulgin. In turn, Shulgin queried various advanced research and development agencies in the U.S. government to find out if the flying disks were indeed part of a secret project. In a memo written to the FBI on September 5, 1947, Shulgin reported that, quote, A complete survey of research activities discloses that the Army Air Forces has no project with a characteristics similar to those which have been associated with the flying disks."
1: But General Shulgin was undeterred. He continued up the chain of command and sent Garrett's report to the Technical Intelligence Division of the Air Material Command, or AMC. This division's primary function was to analyze reports of a potential or real enemy's air power. If the flying saucers weren't American, perhaps they came
0: from somewhere else. In a since-declassified letter written on September 23, 1947, AMC Commander Nathan F. Twining provided his findings to the commanding general of the Army Air Forces. He confirmed that while some sightings might be due to natural phenomena, such as meteors, flying saucers were indeed real. Twining recommended that a special project should be created to conduct a more detailed study of flying saucers.
1: Twining's analysts considered the possibility that if the saucers weren't American technology, they could be Soviet aircraft that was developed from former Nazi technology. At the end of World War II, the Germans were exploring radical aircraft and missile technology. After the war, it was entirely possible that the Soviet Union had acquired these studies and made new discoveries. If so, it was incredibly important for the U.S. government to learn more about the mysterious flying saucers.
0: Scientists at Wright Field's Aircraft Laboratory conducted tests on the theoretical aerodynamics of observed flying saucer movements and came to a startling conclusion. There was no conceivable technology that could allow for these aircraft movements. Furthermore, even if they could be built, unmanned flight wasn't sophisticated enough yet and no human could survive the intense maneuvers the flying saucers executed. By the time the test concluded, the American government was forced to confront the idea that the flying saucers might be alien spacecraft.
1: In late January of 1948, an official classified study known as Project Sign was commissioned with the directive to, quote, collect, collate, evaluate, and distribute to interested government agencies and contractors all information concerning sightings and phenomena in the atmosphere which can be construed to be of concern to the national security, end quote.
0: Over the next few months, Project Signs researchers studied around 180 flying saucer cases. Many of them came from credible witnesses who had no motivation to fabricate their accounts for fame or exposure. For instance, on April 5, 1948, Three balloon observers at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico saw two large, irregularly rounded aircraft climbing high into the sky. Both objects executed complex aerial maneuvers before rapidly flying to the west.
1: Another case occurred a few months later on July 24th. As Eastern Airlines Captains Clarence S. Childs and John B. Whitted piloted a DC-3 passenger plane over Alabama, They observed an object coming towards them in the distance. At first, they thought it was an approaching jet due to the advancing glow of the object's exhaust. However, as it drew nearer, the pilots saw the craft had a long cigar-shaped wingless fuselage and was blasting a red-orange exhaust from its rear. There was no way this was a jet.
0: The craft passed dangerously near their plane, and Charles had to jerk the plane to the right to avoid it. As it passed behind the plane, Witted observed the object execute a steep vertical ascent before disappearing from view. One of the plane's passengers reported seeing an intensely bright streak of light outside his window. The sighting was also confirmed by a crew chief at Robbins Air Force Base and another pilot near the Virginia-North Carolina border.
1: Eastern Airlines shared the details of Chiles and Whitted's encounter to the media And by the next day, newspapers were running the story with the sensational headline, quote, Buck Rogers-like plane passes two airline pilots, end quote. Project Sign investigators quickly contacted the airline captains and had them provide drawings and descriptions of what they had seen.
0: This sighting was notable in how it differed from standard descriptions of flying saucer encounters. This craft seemed to be something else entirely. From Chiles and Witted's descriptions, It couldn't be a missile, as they reported the craft's fuselage had windows. The technology required to power such a craft was far beyond any human-made technological capabilities.
1: In September 1948, Project Sign composed a formal intelligence summary of its findings. The conclusion was that flying saucers were extraterrestrial spacecraft. This top-secret document was passed along to Air Force Chief of Staff General Hoyt S. Vandenberg. He immediately dismissed it.
0: In General Vandenberg's opinion, the report lacked any concrete proof. The report was declassified shortly thereafter. The thought that the flying saucers were alien vessels was summarily dismissed, but Project Sign carried on. In February
1: 1949... Project Sign released its final report. This one was far less sensational than the last and concluded that, quote, no definite and conclusive evidence is yet available that would prove or disprove the existence of these unidentified objects as real aircraft of unknown and unconventional configuration. It is unlikely that positive proof of their existence will be obtained without examination of the remains of crashed objects,
0: end quote. However, the report also conceded that, quote, proof of non-existence is equally impossible to obtain unless a reasonable and convincing explanation is determined for each incident, end quote. With the matter still unresolved, Project Sign's personnel was replaced with almost an entirely new staff, and it was renamed Project Grudge. There's no official explanation for the name Grudge, but some have suggested it comes from the Air Force's annoyance with the flying saucer phenomenon and desire to get rid of it. This theory is certainly understandable, since Project Grudge had a mandate to offer conventional explanations for credible flying saucer reports.
1: In February 1949, Project Grudge issued a confidential technical report of its findings, which is notable for utilizing the term unidentified flying objects, although the acronym UFO wouldn't be introduced until 1953. Up until this point, reports had referred to these aircraft as flying saucers or flying disks. But now, the term was widened to include any aerial craft or phenomenon that wasn't readily
0: identifiable. The Project Grudge report concluded that UFO sightings were the result of misidentified conventional objects, mild mass hysteria and war nerves, publicity-seeking hoaxes, and people suffering from pathological delusions. Essentially, there was no reason to believe that UFOs were secret military projects or alien spacecraft.
1: But UFO sightings continued to flood in, and the Air Force couldn't ignore them. On the morning of September 10, 1951, an operator at the Army Signals Corps Radar Center in Monmouth, New Jersey, picked up an unidentified object moving north at 700 miles per hour, just under the speed of sound. Remember that the sound barrier had been broken only a few years prior. Planes that could fly that fast were extremely rare, and if there was one in the area, the Army Signals Corps would
0: have known about it. 25 minutes later, and 20 miles to the south, two Air Force pilots flying a T-33 jet trainer over Point Pleasant, New Jersey, spotted a disc-like object about 30 to 50 feet in diameter flying below them at an estimated speed of 900 miles per hour. The pilots followed the object as it descended towards the town of Sandy Hook, But it abruptly stopped and hovered for a moment before flying out to sea and disappearing over the horizon. It's unclear whether this was the same object seen flying over Fort Monmouth or if two aircraft were speeding through the skies that day.
1: This sighting prompted an evaluation of Project Grudge by Director of Intelligence Major General Charles Cabell. He felt the heads of Project Grudge weren't taking UFO reports seriously enough. As with Project Sign, Project Grudge's staff was replaced. The project was put under the direction of Captain Edward J. Ruppelt. While he would approach UFO reports more seriously, he didn't encourage rampant speculation.
0: In March of 1952, under Ruppelt, Project Grudge was renamed Project Blue Book after the exam books used in universities. This new name reflected the project's more even-handed approach towards UFOs. In April of that year, the Office of Public Information released a memo stating the UFOs were not, quote, considered a joke or something which can be brushed off lightly as readily explainable, but rather it is considered to be something which warrants constant vigilance and thorough intelligence analysis in an attempt to provide a satisfactory solution, end quote.
1: In that month alone, Project Blue Book received 82 UFO reports. In May, it was 79. In June, they received 148. And in July, it ballooned to 536, which was higher than the total number of sightings the year before. Project Blue Book received 1,501 reports of UFOs over the course of 1952 around 1,200 reports were able to be explained as either balloons, astronomical bodies, known aircraft, light phenomena, birds, clouds, insufficient information, or psychological manifestation. Over 303 of these cases remained unexplained.
0: One of the most notable cases of 1952 occurred over two weekends in late July. On July 19th at 11.40 p.m., A group of UFOs appeared on long-range radar scopes at the Air Route Traffic Control Center in Washington, D.C.
1: These objects moved relatively slowly at around 100 miles per hour. But they quickly accelerated to speeds capable of outrunning F-94 fighter planes, which could reach up to 640 miles per hour. A few of them flew dangerously close to commercial airliners, one airline pilot reported seeing six bright lights flashing across the sky, quote, "like falling stars without tails," end quote. a few hours later, the radar technicians picked up a target directly over the Andrews Air Force Base just south of Washington D.C. Controllers at the base observed a quote, "huge fiery orange sphere" end quote, floating in the sky above them.
0: Senior air traffic controller Harry G. Barnes reflected on the event in a widely distributed newspaper article, quote, There's no other conclusion I can reach but that for six hours in the morning of the 20th of July, there were at least 10 unidentifiable objects moving above Washington. They were not ordinary aircraft. I could tell that by their movement on the scope. Nor, in my opinion, could any natural phenomena account for these spots on our radar. Exactly what they are? I don't know. End quote.
1: The following weekend, the mysterious objects reappeared on the Air Route Traffic Control Center's radar. This time, F-94 fighter jets were sent out to investigate. When they drew near, the UFOs disappeared from the radar, only to reappear once the F-94s left. Tower operators at Langley Air Force Base visually guided a pilot toward the lights, but those abruptly disappeared as well.
0: One of the F-94 pilots was able to chase after the lights. This time, they surrounded his plane. Unsure of what to do, he asked tower control for guidance, but they weren't able to offer any help. After a few tense moments, the lights sped away.
1: By that Monday, news of the encounter had spread across the country. The headline in Iowa's Cedar Rapids Gazette read, quote, Saucers swarm over capital." end quote. An anonymous source from the Air Force stated, quote, We have no evidence they are flying saucers. Conversely, we have no evidence they are not flying saucers. We don't know what they are, end quote.
0: The story even reached President Harry Truman, who was just as mystified as everyone else. There was so much hysteria surrounding the event that the Air Force's Director of Intelligence, Major General John Samford, had to call a press conference. Unfortunately, the press conference was light on any conclusive answers.
1: One theory he proposed was that a layer of hot air in the sky caused the radar to deflect downward and mistake objects on the ground as airborne. The only problem with this temperature inversion theory is that the temperatures were exceptionally high that entire summer. Why would this temperature inversion happen on only two nights?
0: UFOs were no longer curious objects spotted across skies in the middle of nowhere. They had been spotted in the nation's capital, and they now had the president concerned. By the end of the summer of 1952, President Truman became convinced that UFOs merited serious attention and further study. He even went so far as to ask the CIA to look into whether they represented a threat to the American people. Let's take a short break. We've got a recommendation for you.
1: Now let's get back to the story. In the late summer of 1952, President Truman asked the CIA to become involved in studying UFOs. CIA Director General Walter Bedell Smith assigned his deputy director, Robert Armory Jr., to create a study group within the Office of Scientific Intelligence, or OSI. This group, under the guidance of the Assistant Director of Scientific Intelligence, was meant to focus on the national security implications UFOs posed.
0: During August and September of 1952, the study group consulted with top American scientists. The group came to the conclusion that there was a need for improved procedures for the rapid identification of unknown aircraft. At the time, the United States didn't have a system in place for early warnings of surprise attacks.
1: In October, Edward Ruppelt and other Project Blue Book officials gave a formal briefing of their findings to the OSI. By the end of November, after studying the data provided by Blue Book, the OSI concluded that UFOs were neither American nor Soviet. Assistant Director of Scientific Intelligence Dr. H. Marshall Chadwell recommended that a committee should be formed to, quote, convince the responsible authorities in the community that immediate research and development on this subject must be undertaken, end quote.
0: The Intelligence Advisory Committee discussed the matter and agreed with Dr. Chadwell's recommendation. Howard P. Robertson of the California Institute of Technology would head this new committee of five prominent scientists, known as the Robertson Panel. In January 1953, after four 12-hour days spent reviewing pertinent data from the Air Force, the Robertson panel released a classified report.
1: Essentially, the Robertson panel concluded that UFOs didn't pose any real threat to national security and that to continue taking them seriously would steal focus from more pressing issues. The panel recommended, quote, that the national security agencies take immediate steps to strip the unidentified flying objects of the special status they have been given and the aura of mystery they have unfortunately acquired, quote.
0: In August 1953, the Air Force instituted a policy that kept UFO reports under strict confidentiality unless they could be accurately explained. The penalty for releasing any information to the public regarding an ongoing UFO case became severe. It was classified as a crime under the Espionage Act and was punishable by a prison sentence of up to 10 years or a $10,000 fine.
1: Project Blue Book was essentially reduced to public relations duties, and Captain Charles Hardin replaced Edward Ruppelt as Project Head in March of 1954. The intent of these measures was to delegitimize unfounded reports— But it only served to make people suspicious that the American government was hiding information from its citizens.
0: For a while, the Air Force was able to remain secretive with its UFO studies. But in 1965, a new wave of UFO sightings brought them back under public scrutiny. Project Blue Book suddenly found itself inundated with the largest caseload it had seen in years. In August of 1965, it received its highest number of sightings since the summer of 1952, when UFO sightings were at their peak.
1: It was the first of these August sightings that would turn the tide back in UFO believers' favor. At 1.30 a.m. on August 1st, Captain Snelling of the Air Force Command Post in Cheyenne, Wyoming, reported, quote, a large circular object emitting several colors but no sound sighted over the city, end quote. Fifteen minutes later, the commanding office of the Sioux Army Depot in Sydney, Nebraska described seeing five similar objects.
0: The reports continued throughout the night, with over 35 UFOs sighted around the bases in Cheyenne and Sydney between 2.50 and 4 a.m. Over the next few nights, UFO sightings continued to flood in throughout the south-central United States and the upper Midwest, with reports coming from Arkansas, Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Kansas.
1: Most of the sightings came from reputable sources. In addition to the military personnel, many of the reports came from scientists, engineers, and police officers equipped with two-way radios, which provided real-time audio records of sightings. Plus, many sightings were confirmed by multiple sources, for instance, Oklahoman policemen in patrol cars spread across three different locations, all saw the same objects flying in a diamond-shaped formation for over 30 minutes.
0: Another of these sightings was caught on camera. In the early morning of August 2nd, 1965, news photographer Bob Campbell was monitoring shortwave radio transmissions between Oklahoma and Texas highway patrol officers when he heard a report of an unidentified object being tracked on radar in Oklahoma. Not long after, the object, described as a bright blue-white light, was being tracked near his location outside Sherman, Texas.
1: Campbell grabbed his camera and went to inform the Sherman chief of police. Together, the two men tracked the object about 13 miles east of town. Campbell was able to take four photos of the object which had also been independently cited by two other witnesses. News of the sightings reached Project Blue Book scientific consultant J. Allen Hynek, who went to personally investigate the matter.
0: To make sure Campbell hadn't mistakenly photographed a known celestial entity, Hynek asked him to photograph the night sky, specifically the planet Venus, and a bright streetlight using the same techniques he had used to photograph the UFO. Additionally, scientific advisors for the Air Force were able to confirm that Campbell's original pictures weren't faked and that they had captured a large luminous source moving up and down against a constant background.
1: By August 3rd, the Air Force provided an explanation for what Campbell had seen. Quote The objects observed may have been the planet Jupiter or the stars Rigel, Capella, Betelgeuse, or Aldabaron which were visible at the time of the reported sightings. The azimuth and elevation of the sightings supports this preliminary conclusion."
0: The Air Force's explanation was met with widespread skepticism. One reporter in Wichita brought up the fact that the objects had been picked up on radar, and radar doesn't pick up celestial bodies such as stars and planets. Professor Walter Webb of the Charles Hayden Planetarium in Boston and Dr. Robert Rizzer of the Oklahoma Science and Art Foundation released a scathing joint statement. Quote, This is as far from the truth as you can get. Somebody has made a mistake. These stars and planets are on the opposite side of the Earth from Oklahoma City at this time of the year. The Air Force must have had its star finder upside down during August. End quote.
1: Other media outlets were just as outspoken against the Air Force's explanation. By the fall of 1965, the Air Force had changed its tune. Now it was claiming that, quote, the sightings were due to a temperature inversion, which caused astronomical bodies to appear to change color and move when viewed through layers of atmosphere,
0: End quote. Project Blue Book was suddenly under the microscope again. A request was put in for a panel that would include both physical and social scientists to review Project Blue Book's resources, methods, and findings. This panel would advise the Air Force as to how any improvements could be made.
1: Then, in March of 1966, there was a UFO sighting in Michigan that would change the course of UFO studies in the United States. On the night of Monday, March 14th, Calls began pouring into the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department reporting UFO sightings all across southeastern Michigan. Among the witnesses were multiple sheriff's deputies. Three days later, more UFOs were seen. One police officer described them as, quote, something out of these science fiction scripts. You'd have to see it to believe it, end quote.
0: There was another rash of sightings in the same area on March 20th. And on March 21st, 87 students at Hillsdale College, as well as the school's dean, saw a glowing football-shaped object hover over a swamp for over four hours. In total, over 140 witnesses reported seeing a UFO over the course of this week. The sightings caused so much distress that Michigan Congressman
1: Weston Vivian called for an official investigation. Once again, Project Blue Book scientific advisor J. Allen Hynek was sent to the scene. Hynek gave a press conference in front of what was regarded as the largest gathering of reporters in the Detroit Press Club's history. He suggested that what people had thought were UFOs could have been due to the release of variable
0: quantities of marsh gas. According to Hynek, methane gas released by rotting vegetation could have been spontaneously ignited causing the lights people had thought were coming from UFOs. Heinick was widely mocked in the press, catching flack from established institutions such as Time magazine and The New Yorker. The criticism was so severe that it reached the ears of Michigan congressman, House Republican minority leader, and future president Gerald R. Ford. He called for formal congressional hearings and had his request granted.
1: The first open Congressional hearings on UFOs were held in April 1966. Secretary of the Air Force Harold D. Brown, Project Blue Book Chief Hector Quintanilla and J. Allen Hynek were all asked to testify. Brown restated the Air Force's position that there was no evidence that UFOs were a national security threat or extraterrestrial in origin, and Quintanilla declined to give a statement. However, Heinick decided to break rank.
0: Tired of the backlash he was receiving from his disastrous press conference in Detroit, Heinick went against the established Air Force policy. He called the Air Force's stance that all UFO reports had conventional explanations, a poverty of hypotheses. He advised for a civilian panel of scientists to examine the UFO program. The congressional committee members agreed.
1: Following the hearings, the Air Force partnered with the University of Colorado to conduct an independent scientific investigation of UFOs. Respected physicist Edward Condon would lead the project, which officially began in October 1966. Condon's renowned status gave the project a credibility it had lacked up to that point.
0: However, Condon wasn't particularly interested in UFOs and didn't take the study very seriously. In an article from January 1967, Condon said, quote, It is my inclination right now to recommend that the government get out of this business. My attitude right now is that there's nothing to it, end quote. This was only three months into what was meant to be a two year investigation, and Condon's mind was already made up. Things only deteriorated from there.
1: By mid-1968, the University of Colorado's investigation was in shambles, with key staff resigning or being fired. It was in such disarray that another round of congressional hearings was convened on July 29, 1968. Although participants weren't allowed to directly criticize the Colorado UFO project, their displeasure with its lack of objectivity was obvious.
0: In January 1969, a 965-page paperback version of Condon's report was released. Its general conclusion stated, quote, Nothing has come from the study of UFOs in the past 21 years that has added to scientific knowledge. Careful consideration of the record, as it is available to us, leads us to conclude that further extensive study of UFOs probably cannot be justified in the expectation that science will be advanced thereby, end quote.
1: Even though 30 of the 91 cases studied in Condon's report remained unexplained, it gave the Air Force the justification it needed to shut down Project Blue Book. It was officially terminated in December 1969.
0: Over the course of Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, 12,618 UFO reports were collected and studied. According to a statement released by the U.S. Department of Defense, 11,917 of these cases were able to be explained by material objects like balloons or satellites. However, 701 reported sightings still remain unexplained.
1: These 701 unexplained cases remained a rallying cry for those who continued to believe in UFOs. While the American government was no longer interested in studying them, controversy around its involvement with UFOs would only
0: continue to grow. Next week, we'll return to Roswell, New Mexico, a place so famous for UFO activity that its airstrip is named the Roswell Intergalactic Airport. There, we will delve into the continuing controversies surrounding these mysterious objects.
1: Are UFOs really only tricks of the eye or figments of our imaginations? Or are they the result of secret military tests or even extraterrestrial spacecraft?
0: And could aliens have already crash-landed on Earth? If leaked reports are true, Alien activity was concealed from the public in a cover-up that reached the highest levels of the American government.
1: If you're looking for more unexplained mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, Tune in or your favorite podcast directory.
0: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday.
1: And remember, never take we don't know for an answer.
0: Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedin, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.